open your Bibles with me today, we're going to be reading Psalm 114. One of those nice short psalms. If you live for the the short ones and not the long ones, you're going to like this one. Psalm 114 today. Give you a second to find it. Let's read together. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The seas looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains leaped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it, sea, that you fled? Why, Jordan, did you turn back? Why, mountains, did you leap like rams, you hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. May God bless this reading of his word today. So I have a very serious question to ask all of you today. How on earth did anybody ever manage to remember anything without smartphones? I have no idea. I literally have no idea. We must have at some point in our history, and we must have functioned as a society without these little pocket computers that had all our contacts and our to-do lists and everything, you know, my, I call it my auxiliary brain because really I'm forgetting more and more things so I depend on my, my computer to remember it. I might not even remember what happened six years ago if Facebook didn't keep throwing it up in my face. I probably would have forgotten it was my birthday a couple of weeks ago if Google wasn't tapping me on the shoulder to remember, remind me. We're so dependent on technology to help us remember things to remember our past, what we've learned, that I don't think we even realized that even basic technology, like the printed word, wasn't around for most of human history. They didn't have that sort of information, that those technology to help people remember things, to help them preserve their past. So how did they do it? How did the people in the Bible remember everything God did for them, everything God told them? The average Joe and Jane Israelite didn't have scrolls lying around, I mean, the priests had those, but they were very expensive, hard to reproduce. So the average person had something a lot more simple, a very tried and tested technology that dates all the way back to the beginning of recorded history. And that's what I call the organic computer. How it functions is this. It's a fancy way of saying how a whole community collectively works to remember something and to preserve it accurately. See, that's that's the problem. Any time you have information, There's always that danger of information becoming corrupted. And we look back at the Bible and go, how do we know that the Bible's accurate? How do we know that these words that have been passed down to us are accurate, are tried and testworthy and true? One person alone, if it was left up to to just one person, that's probably what would happen. It would become very faulty and would start to fall apart. But Israel knew this, which is why they would regularly, they got in the habit of regularly getting together as families and larger groups, as a whole assembly, they would get together and they would retell the stories of God. They would retell the the words of God from the scriptures. So this is how it would work. One person would stand up or sit down. I don't know how it worked in that, that society, but one person would do the reciting. So they would retell a story. They would retell a passage of scripture. But the whole community, the computer, 
they would listen. And they would be listening very carefully because if George slipped up, if he got one word wrong, if he got one fact wrong, they would stop him and say, no, that's wrong. They would correct him, and then he would have to repeat it the right way. See, the whole computer, the whole community functioned as fact-checking so that everybody got the information absolutely correct. And that's how they would pass down these stories and these verses in sacred scripture through verbal, uh, verbal history, but they would do it in a very accurate way. As we pointed out before, of course, while reciting things works to remember, what works even better is, of course, putting things to song. Song helps our memories in a way that just saying things out loud doesn't. And committing history and theology to songs is all what psalms are about. Psalms are here to help us remember God's history. The psalms weren't here for us to say out loud. They were here for us to sing them out loud so that we could remember and keep this information alive. And there's a batch of psalms in here that we're kind of picking into today. Psalms 113 through 118 that were sung every year at the Passover time to help the people of Israel remember what God had done for them, to help them remember this history. And these six psalms are called the halal. Halal means praise in Hebrew. They're praise songs. They're songs of praise to a God who has done wonderful things. And the people say, God, we want to remember. We want to remember what you've done and praise you for it. So as we look at Psalm 114, which is the second uh, halal psalm, we want to, we're invited here to participate in a world-transforming memory that dates all the way back to the book of Exodus. And we're invited to participate in that today. So I, wanna, I want us to get a little bit excited about that because it's really cool to be a part of this. So one thing you might notice as you look at Psalm 114, you go, for such a short psalm, there's an awful lot of repetition and parallel lines. And anytime you see that in the Psalms, basically what's happening here is the, the, the author knows you read really fast. So they put in these parallel lines to slow you down. They're basically a speed bump to slow the reader, slow the singer down so that you're really thinking about what you're singing. You're thinking about what you're reading. And they want you to ponder this psalm. They want you to really absorb it, to think upon what's being said. Because the very first thing that we read here in Psalm 114 is the writer, he's, he's stretching our memories back to when the he Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt. He says, remember that? Remember when they were under a foreign tongue? When the words they said weren't even in their own language? Remember when they were oppressed? Cast your minds back. When the, when the psalm writer wrote Psalm 114, this was already ancient history. And he didn't want the people to forget it. He says, remember, we as a people used to be oppressed. We as a people used to be denied our own land, our own national identity, our own language. We didn't even have a flag to fly. We had none of that. We were under bondage in Egypt. And he wanted to remind us of that, that fact that they were under bondage in Egypt. Of course, as Christians, we look at our own lives. As we read this verse, we can't help but re be reminded of when we were in bondage ourselves. Of course, we were in bondage to our sins. Romans 6 tells us that back before our salvation, we were slaves to sin. Sin was our master. Sin was calling the shots. Sin was telling us, you do this, do what pleases you. Don't please God, please yourself. 
Please yourself at the expense of other people. Please yourself at the expense of God. Just make yourself happy. You were slaves to sin. And we're reminded that that slavery was going to lead us to eternal death, to eternal death in hell. And the thing was, we gladly lived in that sin. We would have wallowed in that sin forever if God hadn't stepped in to intervene. And with the, with the Hebrews, he absolutely did that. In the book of Exodus, we see how God intervened. The, the Hebrews didn't, the, didn't cast off their own bondage. They didn't rescue themselves out of Egypt. God did that. God stepped in, intervened, and redeemed his people. But he didn't stop there. And that's real, what the really cool thing is. God didn't just redeem his people, but he gave them an identity in him. He said, you are my people, and I am your God. That's an identity language, saying, I am I'm yours, you are mine. I am now your identity. Anytime somebody sees you, they will identify you with me. And he gave them a dignity, a national dignity, saying, I, you are my chosen people. And he provided a promise for their future. That's what God gave to them as he rescued them from Egypt. God even said, I, I elected you to be my chosen nation, and I will dwell among you. I will make you my sanctuary. And what God's talking about is making a sanctuary. He's talking about coming into the temple and dwelling among the people. So anytime people looked up to the temple, they say, that's where God is right now. He's right among us in the temple in Jerusalem. We can see the parallel in our own lives at the moment of our conversion. Formerly, we were slaves to sin. We had the shackles of sin binding us. But Jesus Christ liberated us from being that, in that slavery so that he could give us an identity in him. We call ourselves Christians because we want to be identified with Christ. We want the world to know that we follow Christ, that Christ is our identity, that we're no longer living for ourselves. It's no longer about us. It is about him. And Christ clothes us with dignity. He says, you are special. You are my children. You're not just servants. You're my adopted children, the, the sons and daughters of the king. I will give you a crown. I will give you glory. I will give you dignity. And I will give you a promise for your future. And he goes one step beyond that, right? Where back in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people. But Christ says, I will give you the spirit who will make his sanctuary not in a building, not in this building, but he will make his sanctuary in you. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and dwells in your life and makes you his sanctuary. We think about how God calls us to be his people. I think it regularly, pretty consistently does two things. Anytime you really think upon this, that God called you. God wanted you to be his people. He wanted to give you that dignity. He wanted to give you that identity. He wanted to give you that redemption. He wanted to give you that promise. Anytime you think upon that, first of all, it usually makes you ask this question, why me? Why would God choose this? There's far better people in the world, right? Oh, God, you don't need this. <clears throat> this is a mess. You need to go out there and pick some better people. Why would God choose me? And as you're thinking about that, the only answer to that that we have is that God picked you out of his good pleasure. He chose you not because of your own virtues, not because you're the best humanity has to offer. He chose you because he loved you and he called you according to his purpose. That was his good pleasure. So as you kind of ponder that, it makes us celebrate the fact he rescued us. Every day, from the day of your conversion 
to the final day of your life here on earth, you have a reason to praise God and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for redeeming me. You are free from the sins that once weighed you down with such guilt. You might have tried to deny that guilt, but it was there. And you're going, I know I'm guilty, and I can't get rid of it. But after you're forgiven, after you're saved, Christ is taking that guilt away from you. You have nothing to feel guilty about because he has assumed that sin. He has taken that guilt away, and you are free. You are also free from your destructive future. And you are free to enjoy the blessings and the gifts that God so graciously wants to give to you. That's the freedom in Christ that we talk about here. Now moving on as we look at this psalm, I think verses 3 through 6 are just some of the most whimsically worded in all of the, the psalms. It's really crazy language when you're looking at it here. Sometimes we read the Bible way too seriously with very somber voices. And I don't think that, especially as we get into the Psalms, where it's very emotional language. And sometimes there's a very emotionally, like sometimes the emotion is humor. Sometimes it's lightheartedness. And that's what we're, we're seeing here in the middle of Psalm 114. If you, ever, if you have ever read children's books, you know how there's a certain language that authors usually use to put human-like emotions and attitudes and behavior onto objects and and animals. We're pretty used to that. So that's what kind of the author is doing here. He's looking at nature and he's putting human-like emotions into nature, human-like actions. And so why he's doing this is he wants to remember times where God physically manifested himself to the people of Israel back in the wanderings of the desert. There are three major what we call theophanies. A theophany is a time where God physically demonstrated his godness to the people, where he showed up in a physical, you could observe it, it was a, a scientific, observational way, where you could look at God and you could see God moving. And that happened three major times, and the author here, the songwriter, describes seas fleeing, and hills leaping, and mountains trembling. Now, I don't usually... Drive, we went for a drive yesterday around the countryside, and I looked at a lot of hills, and I don't usually think of hills as jumping around, prancing around like little sheep, like excited little sheep jumping over each other, right? That's not something you normally think of when you look at hills, but it's kind of a crazy, funny type of language here. I don't usually think of a mighty river suddenly seeing something and go, whoops, I'm turning around and going the other way. Thank you, but no, not doing that. We don't normally think of these things, but here... Through this language, the songwriter conveys the sensation of being present for these amazing events that are once in a lifetime, once in a generation, once in a, a history kind of events where they got to see God in action. The three theophanies that the songwriter are, is pointing to here, he's alluding to when God parted the Red Sea so the, or the Hebrews could walk through on dry land. When God came down and the Shekinah glory cloud on Mount Sinai and spoke to the people there and delivered the Ten Commandments, delivered the law. And finally, when God parted the Jordan to allow the people to come into the promised land. These are stories well worth remembering. They wanted to remember these stories for all time. So as the people remember the, these events, the songwriter goes on to ask a series of rhetorical questions. We love rhetorical. 
Don't you love rhetorical questions? Yeah, you're nodding. That's a rhetorical question. So he asks these questions. He says, who made the sea flee? Who made the river turn back? Who made the mountain tremble? Great questions. Were these just mundane, natural events that could be explained away? Were they the result of great civil engineering projects? A whole bunch of dynamite shaking mountains or making seas turn back with dam? No. I mean, we know the answer here. You're going, okay, I know, where, I know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. Back when I taught teens, we had a kind of running joke that we called Sunday school answers. Sunday school answers were this. You, there were four answers that anybody who grew up in a church knew by heart because they answered like 99% of anything that was ever asked in Sunday school. The answers were always this, God, Jesus, sin, rainbows. Any one of those four usually could be applied to almost any question. So you go, okay, well, who made the world? God. Why did Jesus die for us on the cross? Sin. What was the sign? You know, God gave Noah rainbows. You got, you got it, right? So I would have to, as a teacher, I usually had to think ahead and go, I need to ask questions that aren't going to give me a Sunday school answer because those are kind of these rhetorical questions. But what we know the answer to the questions in Psalm 114. We're already thinking ahead going, the answer is God. Obviously, it's God, right? You know, we, we know it. Move on. We got it. We're, we're expert. This is all beginner-level church stuff. We're, we're at expert level. Move on. But the creative way, I think, that the psalmist describes how God showed up and what he did in front of the people in a very creative way makes you step back and reconsider what God really did. To, again, slow you down to keep you from going straight toward that Sunday school answer, and to make you really think about this. Who indeed has the power to take a mountain and shake it, to stop a river from flowing and make it absolutely dry so people could pass through? Who has the power to part a sea on command? Who really can do that? It's just a mere command. Israel wanted to remember these three special moments where God revealed himself to him, and how he showed his people that there was just nothing too great that God could not do. Nothing too great he couldn't do. Likewise, we should, be, we should get into habit, the spiritual discipline, of reflecting in our own lives of when we've seen God show up in our lives. I think we all have. We have all seen, had moments where maybe it was the day the Bible really clicked for you went from being just a book with rules and stories and you didn't really get it to this is my life. This is really about God. It's, I'm connecting with it. That day where the Bible became alive because the Holy Spirit was in you, helping you to illuminate the scriptures. Maybe it was a day where a passage, a verse, had a profound impact on your life and became your life verse. Maybe it was when you felt faith stirring in your soul. That's when you felt God show up or when you saw an answer to prayer, or you saw God working in the world in a way that you could not explain away any other way. And you go, that was God showing up. Those are the days you want to remember. Those are the days you want to remind yourself over and over again, especially on the days that it's hard to have that faith. We feel your faith start to tremble and shake. And you go, you know what? I need to remember when I saw God show up, when I felt him show up, because it will help you in your life. Now, here's something I've always wondered about little kids. I'm no child psychologist, but I've always wondered this. Why are children 
so fascinated by dinosaurs instead of terrified by them. I mean, I've seen kids who are, will run away screaming in fear when a ladybug happens to land down next to them. But they will, at the, the science museum, they will run right up to that gigantic, towering, three-story tall Tyrannosaurus Rex and think it's the coolest thing in the world. They, I don't get this. Why do children have such a fascination with these giant murder lizards? I, I don't know. Well, I, kinda, I have two theories on this. This is what I do with my spare time. You ever wondering what I do? I come up with theories about why children like dinosaurs. So my two theories are this. My first theory is that kids simply like the idea of a creature that's bigger than their parents and able to eat their parents in one or two bites. I think kids feel like they're so small that they are attracted to something that's bigger than the, the typically big thing in their life, which is their parents. And so we go to the, we go to the museum and we see, you know, like these ancient, you know, sharks. What do they call them? Mastodons? Not mastodons. The, yeah, the, those giant shar sharks or triceratops. And, and the kids go, Dad, hmm, that makes you kind of think, doesn't it? Like, you know, maybe you should be nicer to your kids. Maybe give them an allowance raise, huh? If, we do, if you do that, maybe I'll put a good word in for you if we, we ever go back to the Triassic period or something. I don't know. But my second theory, which I think is probably a better one, is that things that are huge and powerful are just cool. They just are. And kids are attracted to what are cool, even if they're scared of it at the same time. Kids can handle this complex set of emotions, and we can too where they're attracted to something that's both scary and thrilling at the same time. You ever done that when you've been attracted to something, like you've gone to the lip of the Grand Canyon, up to the top of a skyscraper, and you're terrified, but at the same time it's thrilling? Or you go up a roller coaster hill, it's terrifying, but it's thrilling. That combination of emotions, that's what I think is in play here when we look at God in the final two verses here in Psalm 114. We've got a, this picture of two almost conflicting emotions. That God is scary, he's terrifying on a level, but at the same time, he's thrilling. And we can't help but be attracted to that. And we can have both of these in view at the same time. The first in verse 7, if you're looking here, speaks of trembling in fear at the presence of the Lord. Yet, in verse 8, we get this picture of a God who is tenderly caring for his people. The, the people want to remember when God tenderly, creatively cared for them. And those two emotions, though, where God is this tender caregiver and God is a terrifying presence, seems like it's hard to reconcile. God is truly frightening when we truly consider his scope, his power, his holiness. You can't come into the holy presence of the Lord without your knees knocking, without your heart hammering in your chest, without averting your eyes from his glory. We've seen that every time in the Bible when somebody comes into the glory of the Lord. When they come into his presence, they fall down flat. They tremble. There's fear there. Yet at the same time, we can't help but want to be in that presence, to want to be closer to God because it's incredible to behold both of these things at the same time. And when we are in the presence of God, God tenderly cares for us. 
He provides for us out of his love. He makes it a wonderful place to be where you can be scared, but at the same time you're rejoicing and you're celebrating because you're that closer to God. I think C.S. Lewis did a great job in his Chronicles of Narnia. When you read those books and you see the character of Aslan, remember Aslan's the, the Jesus figure in, in Narnia? And when, he's, when he portrays Aslan, Aslan's never one thing. He's a very multifaceted lion. And when people approach him, sometimes they're terrified of him. Sometimes they, they run up right to him as kids run up to their favorite playmate, and Aslan the lion plays with them. Sometimes he is, he is mighty, and he roars. Sometimes he leaps into battle, and he fights. Sometimes he has words that are sweet as honey. And there's this combination of being thrilled by him and being terrified at the same time. Yet his people want to be near him. They're drawn to him. They're encouraged by his presence. And that's how we are with Christ. The language of the last verse in Psalm 114 not only points to a God who creatively and compassionately took care of his people in the past, but the language says that he's still doing it even today, that his care is ongoing, that he never stops. Last week we talked about how God's uh, eternal nature means that he's eternally there. We can always... um, depend on him for our salvation, but we can also eternally depend on him for our, his care of us. There may be nothing that's too large for God, but in the very last verse here, we see that there is nothing too small, no one too small for God to notice and God to take care of as well. We may see and feel small in the large scheme of things, but God knows us. He has called us by name. He has numbered every hair on your head. He knows you. And he cares for you. He provides for you. When we, the people of God, remember God's election of us, God's appearances, his theophanies in our lives, how God shows up in our lives, when we see God's caring for us, we are provided with enough material for a thousand more praise songs to be written about what God has done for us. So this week, I want to encourage you, Lift your voice to God and say, God, I remember. I remember the way that your people have always remembered what mighty things you have done for us as a community and for me as a person. I remember these things. I remember. What can I do for you this week in return? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just as the Hebrews celebrated how you saved them from Egypt, how you delivered the law to them, how you brought them into the promised land. Lord, today we share in that memory. We praise you because that's part of the foundation of our salvation. It's part of the foundation of our history with you that you did these mighty, wonderful things. And Lord, we're reminded over and over again of how you've done this on an individual scale in our life. You've redeemed us. You've called us to you. You've washed us clean, and you've given us a hope and a purpose. Lord, I pray for those, Lord, right now who might be listening, who might be out there, our friends and family who are still in bondage. They might deny it. They might say that there is no such thing as sin. There is no such thing as God. There's nothing ruling over their lives. But Lord, they know. Somewhere down deep, it's just you and them. They know. 
They know they, they're on the wrong side of you. Lord, they need you. And please, just I ask today, spark in them that faith. Send the Holy Spirit to regenerate their lives, to call them towards you, to help them respond when they hear the words of Scripture. Not that Pastor Justin makes it alive, but Lord, that you make these words alive. Speak to them on a powerful way. Call them to you. Lord, give them the same future that you're giving us, because it is a glorious one indeed. Lord, in all these things we praise your name. Amen. Let's close today with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the message that Pastor Justin gave us. We thank you that you have put your banner over us, that whatever flag we stood under before, whatever, however we identified ourselves, you've saved us from that. And it's not always bad things that we found ourselves pursuing before, but they certainly weren't things of you and things of your kingdom. And now we are called your children. We are part of your kingdom. We are heirs to your throne, which is unbelievable. The God who is powerful enough to create the entire universe, knit us together in our mother's womb. The God who has authority over all of creation calls us his children. And that is how we identify ourselves. And that is awesome. And that is a blessing. And we are grateful to be renamed and claimed by you and and given a new life and that's what you you've saved us from so much more than just sin of course you've saved us from sin but you've saved us from ourselves you've saved us from whatever it was that we were wrapped up in before so god we are grateful for that reminded to to, that our prayers are with the kellers as bob we lost bob keller's dad to covid complications this week so please continue to bless the kellers put your hand on them and comfort them and whoever might be dealing with uh the the pandemic and the things going on in the world right now we pray your comfort into those situations jesus we love you and we long to know you more we long to follow you better and it's in your name we pray amen we miss you guys we love you guys and if you are comfortable with it we hope to see you next week take care